You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP. I'm Sean Stevens, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Jamil Khan and Dr. Lewis McKinnon. Jamil is an RACGP WA counsellor and prescriber of medicinal cannabis and recently represented the RACGP WA in the WA Parliamentary Inquiry into Cannabis. Dr. Lewis McKinnon is co-deputy chair of the RACGP WA faculty and also a medicinal cannabis prescriber and co-author of the RACGP WA submission into the parliamentary inquiry into cannabis. Welcome, gentlemen. Hi there. Hi. So, Jamil, first, if I can turn to you, can you please explain for our listeners what are the various types of cannabinoids and what is licensed for use in Australia? Well, it's got an interesting history of cannabis and the medicinal cannabis more recently. For a very long period of time in the last century, it has been a banned substance, but around 1970s, there were some experiments done in various countries which showed for the first time that there could be some benefit in some of the components of this plant. And further research showed that mammals, including humans, have an endocannabinoid system with receptors, uh, primarily two types, CB1, CB2, CB1 being mostly in the brain, CB2, rest of the body. And they found that uh, the what are termed as cannabinoids, the various chemical components of cannabis, have an effect on these. To date, more than 130 various chemicals have been identified, but of primary importance remain the THC, and CBD. So THC is tetrahydrochlorocannabinoid and CBD is cannabidolic acid. These all exist in, a, in an acidic form, but on heating, they then become the components that we use in various forms and shapes as medicinal cannabis. So in Australia, we now have a permission to prescribe and uh, for the patients to use primarily two types, which are the CBD and THC in various forms and uh, compositions. The most common being the oils, where you can have either a combination of THC and CBD in various parts, or you can have just pure CBD or pure THC products. The THC is the main product that has an effect on the brain and can cause the high and the hallucination type of uh, effects that are associated with cannabis, while CBD, on the other hand, has no such effects. Therefore, we can use them either in their individual form, like pure CBD or pure THC, or a combination thereof. Equal parts, or one being low and the other being high, And in order to access them, where my other colleague would talk in a bit more detail, you have to apply to the TGA to get special permission for them. In case product has a THC component, then you also need to get clearance from the Department of Health in WA because then it is considered as a Schedule 8 drug. Very interesting. Lewis, you're a medicinal cannabis prescriber. Can you please let our listeners know how you might go about getting registered and what the paperwork is like to be able to prescribe for a patient? 
Yeah, thanks very much, Sean. The paperwork is at the moment not super streamlined. I will talk later about another avenue of prescribing that makes it a bit more streamlined. But for your average prescriber or the person doing it perhaps for the first time, you do need to use a variety of resources. One of the things that's first of all important is that you are have familiar with the TGA Special Access Scheme portal. So it's a website, obviously government posted, and that's where you're going to communicate your intention to treat to the TGA, who are obviously representing the Commonwealth. As Jamil's alluded to, prescribing at the moment is a bit complicated because we also have to navigate the legalities of our state government. And of course, for us, it's uh, Western Australia. So first of all, we have to apply on the TGA portal. We uh, register a drug that we wish to prescribe, fill in some information on the website, and we're essentially applying for an individual permit for that patient to be prescribed that specific drug. So it's both specific to the patient and specific to a particular drug. So if we do, for example, change the drug formulation to something a bit stronger or less strong, we have to do an entirely new application altogether. We also have some paperwork to complete because cannabis is regulated slightly differently than, say, opiates, which you know also have potential for harm. But just as you and I can have a conversation with our patients and then prescribe them an opiate, that doesn't suffice at the moment for cannabinoid products. And we have to really have a checklist, a consent form, and show evidence of our treatment plan to the TGA. And generally speaking, that's countersigned by the patient. And then you can upload that as a piece of evidence. So you need to also have a bit of a to and fro of uh, printing a document, filling it in, scanning it in, and having it emailed back to you to then attach it to a website. So it's a bit of a rigmarole at the moment that really could be streamlined. After a certain period of time, usually anywhere between you know 24 hours and maybe a couple of days, which actually dealing with the government's quite quick, your approval or rejection will come through in an electronic format to whatever email that you've registered. I use our practice manager's email just to keep it all in one place. And then we notify the patient that they have it's been approved. At the moment, it's... You know, with experience and you selecting the right patients, that almost always gets approved because we go through all standard checks. So I usually just book my patients in for a follow-up appointment later in the week. At that follow-up appointment, a couple of things happened. I need to provide my patient with my prescription. And for many of you, uh, most medical software won't have those drugs available for selection from the default list of drugs. So that would be something that you'll need to plan around and add those manually, which maybe sounds a bit daunting, but it's not a very difficult task and just needs to be done as a once-off. Then we print the prescription, obviously, and I also provide the patient with the TGA approval. That approval then has to go to the pharmacy along with the prescription. And in some states, such as Western Australia, then based on the product, you may need the state approval as well to go with that. Also, bear in mind that your patient will maybe not be able to access that medication immediately because the value of or the drugs themselves is quite high and a lot of pharmacies will need to order them in specifically. So there's a bit of a lag time behind prescribing and uh, actually filling that prescription too. I also prescribe within a clinical trial. It's a qualitative study based on a patient's response to treatment. And so I notify the trial that I'm enrolling a patient with their consent and fill in some additional trial-based paperwork. And then the patient also has sort of independent verification of their improvement or otherwise with the medication. And then we really just treat it like any other prescription, really have a clear boundaries of time when I'd like them to come back for return, encourage them to keep a symptom diary and make myself available if they have any other questions.
Let's turn now to the evidence for cannabis and the indications. So looking at the RSCGP guidelines, there's a number of conditions with low or very low evidence, such as nausea and vomiting, depression, anxiety, insomnia, tics, etc. Let's concentrate on the conditions where most GPs get asked, and that's around, or at least I have, which is around chronic non-cancer pain. Jamil, can you please run through with us the evidence and your experience in treating chronic non-cancer pain with cannabis products? The evidence around medicinal cannabis component drug is very helter-skelter. It's, we still lack some high-quality evidence that can clearly demonstrate whether they are or are not effective. But that said, TGA, when they published their clinical guidelines for the use of medicinal cannabis in treatment of chronic non-cancer pain, although it was a bit old, like it came out in 2017, their analysis concludes that the medicinal cannabis products were superior to placebo in producing 30% reduction in pain scores and 50% reduction in pain intensity ratings. However, the overall quality of evidence related to efficacy was low. Recently, there has been quite a lot of work that is being done and quite a few independent high-quality studies are being undertaken throughout Australia and even internationally, which would help us further clarify exactly what to expect when we prescribe these drugs. Talking more of my personal experience, I have been prescribing them for the past three, three and a half, four years, although not uh, extensively, but in most cases, my patients have requested trial of medicinal cannabis for the chronic non-cancer pain. As we all know, it's a very complex area. Most of our patients uh, would be on various doses of opioids, and various other regimes and there's an ongoing debate and issue and effort by the medical faculty to try and wean them off the opioids or at least bring it down to very low levels where we can. Now in this context whenever I'm talking to my patients I try and address their expectations first because whenever they ask for uh, medicinal cannabis They've got very high expectations, almost considering this to be a panacea and that if they start taking medicinal cannabis, there won't be any pain. Uh, obviously, that's not true. In particular cases, I found that almost all of my female patients, particularly those who were 55 and above, had quite strong benefit in their pain. Compared to them, in the male population, it was a mixed response. While they all accepted that there was some relief and that they could sleep a bit better and could function a bit better, the pain was still there and they needed the opioids or other medications to manage that. I tried a combination initially of the THC and CBD but now for various reasons, I now am prescribing mostly just the CBD or a very low THC and CBD combination, which is easy to get approvals. It doesn't have any problems with regards to issues with driving, because if there is any amount of THC detected while you're driving, it's an offense, a culpable offense. So quite a few patients are a bit uh, hesitant 
to go on that. While the evidence suggests that a combined effect will be more efficacious than just using the one. So in a nutshell, the evidence base for the effectiveness of medicinal cannabis in managing non-cancer chronic pain is not very high, but exists. And I have a feeling that it is increasing. I think another important aspect that would come out of it, as I've seen in my practice, is choosing the right patient and managing their expectation. If we are able to, I, I tell my patients that, look, guys, medicinal cannabis is not like any other pill, like an opioid pill that you take. You have to give it time anywhere between four to eight weeks to slowly increase. And when you are dosing, you slowly go higher and you adjust the timings, which would suit the relief from the chronic pain that they are looking for. So, yes, we know that the University of Sydney is playing a leading role in uh, collecting evidence for the use of uh, not just THC and CBD, but other cannabinoids as well, and to try and see which particular ones and what combinations would be best for various conditions, uh, including the chronic non-cancer pain. Thank you, Jamil. That's awesome. Lewis, Jamil referenced an issue a lot of GPs faced, which is that patients have this idea of cannabis treatment being a panacea. You'd get a few patients asking you about it. What's your approach to this? Thanks. Yeah, it's a really good question. My issue with that really is, Jamil's quite rightly outlined, it's not a, a medication that is particularly predictable at the moment. And I say that to patients that more comfortable enrolling you in a trial because I don't know how you respond to this or the outcomes and I, I like to learn as we go along as well. I don't know who it will benefit from it. Some people definitely do appear to benefit from it but a lot of other people don't get quite the improvement in their symptoms that they're expecting and I think you have to manage that level of expectation as well. Again I have to explain to patients that I'm very happy to join them on their uh, you know journey for trying to manage their symptoms but you know, if we escalate doses, as Jamil mentioned, to include THC, that has you know very serious implications for their lifestyle, and then because they will have to cease driving. And one of the kind of sticking points I find is that at the moment you can be drive with a detectable level of alcohol in your bloodstream or a detectable level of opiates or diazepam or whatever and the law would make an assessment about how impaired you are or in the sense in alcohol what level of blood alcohol you have whereas the law doesn't have a similar view on THC and it's essentially a prohibited substance so even if you had the medication a few days ago if it was detectable on testing then you would face criminal prosecution essentially which nobody wants and particularly that's got an implication for the patients who are I find myself prescribing it more for. They tend to be older patients, patients who maybe already have a level of physical disability or mobility issues. And especially my part of the country, I have patients who live up the hill, as we say, in the kind of rural areas. And, and they're really, it's, there's no functional tra public transport for these people. They really are dependent on being able to drive. So I need to explain that to them and mentioning that to people and giving them a clear you know, understanding of what's ahead of them. Some people elect not to go down that route at all. There's also the cost implication as well. Jamil 
mentions about selecting your patients. This is not a way to get high legally that most people would choose. It's very expensive medication and it's not PBS subsidized. Okay, So even if you're on a concession card, you're still going to be paying the full price, which the manufacturers set. And that is you know, hundreds of dollars potentially per month. I think the going rate might be something around 180 or $200 for a 50 milliliter vial of oil. And a dose range might be from half a mil a day to maybe something higher, like three, four or five mils per day, depending on what you use. And unfortunately, it was not a really good way of, of economizing that as you increase the dose the patients just use the vial up faster unless we change the concentrations which then of course has driving implications and adding THC into the mix you may have a different side effect profile as well so again that maybe selects out some people who find that's probably a bit prohibitively expensive that being said I do find it's a really good discussion topic about getting off of other harmful medications and, and maybe the role of opiates in non-cancer pain you know people are looking for an alternative to the status quo that they might be stuck on a dependency on painkillers so those discussions are really important and I do feel that there there is a role there for CBD I'm just not quite sure who that's for I would also say again probably just to reiterate what Jamil said is I, I find probably the most success with the the CBD only products or you know low dose THC products I find that really people if they haven't gotten a benefit at that level going higher tends to be a bit fruitless but the evidence is still to accumulate so it's largely anecdotal observation Mm. Okay, look, thanks very much, guys. This has been fascinating. Just in the dying minutes of the podcast, perhaps if I could get three take-home messages. Jamil, three very brief messages. Look, I think it is a very exciting area in practice of medicine, and I would advise or suggest to my colleagues to put more effort into getting the quality information on this subject because it definitely has a potential to help us get our patients, like Lewis said, uh, patients off heavy doses of opioids. That's one. The second is that more and more research is identifying that wider areas of clinical practice can benefit from the use of medicinal cannabis. And quite a few of our specialist colleagues are also now coming to the party. And the third one is that you should not hesitate in prescribing, provided you fulfill the requirements, and try and see if even one patient can benefit. That will be very good as far as I'm concerned. Great. Thanks, Jamil. And Lewis? I would say great point. My first point would be if you are considering prescribing medicinal cannabis, I recommend that you have a look at what available clinical trials are recruiting. It gives you an additional set of eyes on your patient contributes to the fairly barren research that exists at the moment so we're going to help other people in the future and also probably gives you some reassurance that your prescribing you know is going along you know a scientific basis and that's all being collected and also just reiterate you need to really set your expectation levels with the patient that this might not have any benefit whatsoever and thirdly I would say that there is also another avenue that you can look at to become an approved prescriber whereby you are able to prescribe without those steps I mentioned earlier and just provide a six monthly update to the Department of Health about who you've been prescribing for and there's information on approved prescriber programs through the TGA if you have a look you'll find them very easily and that does certainly cut down on the, the burden of time and paperwork as well. Great. Look, thank you very much, gentlemen. I really appreciate your time and I look forward to speaking again soon. Thanks a lot, Sean. Yeah, thanks, Sean. Thank you very much. 